Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to event 47 of the Ledbury Poetry Festival. Uh, I have to start off, first of all, by thanking our main funders, that's the Arts Council. Uh, Michael Rosen, as many of you already know, is an author, a poet, a presenter, a political columnist, a broadcaster, an activist, who has written over 140 books, probably over 150, because that was an entry that was probably a couple of weeks out of date. Uh, he served as Children's Laureate from 2007 to 2009. If you go into his website, you'll realize there's much more to him than even that. He's fully committed to the society in which he lives. Just follow him on Twitter and you know what I mean. A national treasure is something that is valued by a country, an artifact, an institution, or public figure, regarded as being emblematic of a nation's cultural heritage or identity. So, in China, the panda is considered national treasure. Here we have Michael Wayne Rosen. Now he's back in Ledbury, as generous and as engaged as ever. Please welcome him. Well, thanks very much indeed. Thanks very much for coming. Uh, it's very nice to be here, and you can interpret that in two ways. Um, yes, nice to be here, nice to be here, generally. Um, I am alive, just to reassure you. Um, and uh, in fact, I've discovered, I, I teach at university, and I've discovered that uh, the answer, my students quite often ask me the question about, you know, what's the best way to write and all the rest of it, and they're always asking me about success and so on. And I say, well, if you want success, the best thing to do is nearly die. <laughs> so they're a bit young for it, but um, anyway, I do my best. So what, what I was going to do was read to you today from many different kinds of love, um, and uh, it's basically a story. It's a story of a love affair with the NHS, um, but a few other stories as well. So I will um, tell you it as I go along. Uh, there will be some letters from nurses in it, which um, in a sense is not exactly poetry, but they're as much poetry in my mind as my own poems. And indeed, Ian Macmillan on his programme, The Verb, uh, he regarded them as poems. So it begins in March uh, 2020, uh, day 12, uh, on the 27th of March. The year's seasons roll by in a night. Sweats, freezes, sweats, freezes. I wondered whose mouth I had. I didn't remember it as made of sandpaper. Water is as good as ever. So that was a tweet that I did on day 12. And the thing was, was that uh, I started getting worse and worse. And those of you in the room will maybe remember from that time um, that it was rather difficult to get tested, otherwise known as impossible. Get tested, says my friend John. The GP is closed. A recorded message at the surgery says to not come in and not go to A&E. If you think you might have COVID-19, call 111, it says. I call 111. I get through to the ambulance service and talk to a man who asks me some questions. No, I'm not coughing, I say. No, I don't feel worse today than I felt yesterday. He tells me to keep taking the paracetamol and ibuprofen. I do. In the spare room at home, I say to Emma, it feels like I can't get enough air. There isn't enough air. I can't catch up, I say. There are moments I feel hotter than I've ever felt before and moments when I'm colder than ever before. I shudder as if I'm naked out of doors. We look at the instructions again. Don't call the GP. Don't visit the GP. Don't go to an A&E. Ring the ambulance service. I get through. He asks me if I'm feeling worse than yesterday. <laughs> no. He asks me if I'm coughing. No. He says he thinks I'm fine. Keep taking the paracetamol and Nurofen. <laughs> there isn't enough air. I can't catch up. The doorbell rings. Emma has asked our friend and neighbour who's a GP to visit. She gives Emma a contraption to check if I'm absorbing oxygen and waits outside on the doorstep. Emma hands it back to her. She calls out, you'll have to go in to A&E right now, she says. Well, I can't really walk, I say. I get the shakes just going to the loo. You have to go now, she says. Bump downstairs on your bum, she says. I'll ring them to tell them you're coming, she says. Emma drives me to A&E. I am panting. It's night. The road is empty. The moment I go in, I'm surrounded with people in masks. 
they put an oxygen mask over my face. And I didn't get time to say goodbye to uh, Emma, and in fact, Elsie, our daughter, was on the back seat. Um, and why the doctor sent me with such urgency, she made clear after I came out of hospital, uh, sorry, it's a spoiler alert, I lived. Um, <laughs> it, it's really not much point in reading this book, there really isn't, because, you know, all the way along, you wonder, did he die, did he die? No. So anyway, I've ruined it for you. Don't tell the publishers I told you, okay? Um, and here's, here's uh, Dr. Katie, that was. Uh, I stood at the doorway and showed Emma how to use the oxim oximeter on my own finger and waited for her to come back. Emma came down the stairs and said, it's 58. At first I thought this must be a mistake, that maybe she had confused this with your pulse, <laughs> which is also shown on the display. But when she told me your pulse was 115, I knew there was no mistake. Oxygen saturations are given as a percentage, so I have a maximum of 100. You know, the way doctors, all the doctors in the room will like this, the way sort of so precise, it's lovely, isn't it? Um, like, uh, you know, maximum of 100, yeah, what does that mean? I don't know. A normal level is at least 95%. I had never seen an oxygen saturation this low in someone conscious. So anyway, it's lovely to defy nature uh, there. And so uh, I went into the Whittington Hospital in North London, and um, I was on the wards, as they say, for a short while, and they slapped various uh, things over my mouth, over my face, CPAPs, I think they're called. Um, and then I dipped, I think is what they say, my, my condition dipped. And then the last memory I have is as follows. A doctor is standing by my bed, asking me if I would sign a piece of paper which would allow them to put me to sleep and pump air into my lungs. Will I wake up, I say? There's a 50-50 chance, he says. <laughs> if I say no, I say zero. And I sign. So that's how I wrote it the first time. You can see it on the page there with quite a lot of blank paper underneath. And I, I kept reading this over and over again when I came out of hospital in order to sort of remind myself as to what it was. Because, again, jumping ahead, if you come out of intensive care, and I was in, well, I won't spoil the story. Um, anyway, is you don't quite know what's happened to you. So I kept reading this and remembering that I'd written it. Uh, and I realised that I'd left a bit out. And the bit I left out was that when he said, there's a 50-50 chance, I remember thinking, hey, that's not so bad. <laughs> that's actually very good. Now, whether that's because I was high on morphine or I had what I think the doctors call hypoxia, in other words, oxygen, lack of oxygen, I don't know. But I remember sitting there thinking, 50-50, good stuff, very good, I'm in the clear. And so under I went. Now, uh, what do I know or how do I know of what it was when I went into the coma? Well, this is the bit where I get a bit emotional, um, is that the nurses who looked after me, so this is intensive care uh, in a ward that was geared up for 11 patients, but at the height of, the, uh, of, Mar of April and May, there were 24 of us um, in that ward, and uh, the nurses kept what's called a patient diary or what I call a very patient diary. Um, and incredibly, coming off shift, or maybe just before they went on shift, they wrote, I, I don't care it around because it's getting a bit fragile, in just an ordinary kind of, what I would call a Woolworths exercise book, but it, Woolworths doesn't exist now, never mind. Um, but anyway, in a little simple, Ryman's we say now, don't we? Uh, a Ryman's exercise book, and in their own handwriting, they would write little notes to me. And I have those notes for the whole of the time I was in the coma, and I'm going to read you some of these. And um, as some of my best friends say, well, that was the, really the only good bit in the book, actually, Mike. The, <laughs> I, I wasn't so keen on what you wrote, so I go, well, fine, that's OK. So anyway, let's hear from some of these wonderful people. Hi, Michael. I'm your helper this evening. Your vitals are slowly improving. <laughs> We've wrapped you in a heated blanket and repositioned you regularly to improve your lung perfusion. You're sleeping peacefully at the moment, monitored and controlled by the ventilator. We've still another eight hours together, but so far so good. Jenny, physio by day, ITU helper by night. So sometimes in those little abbreviated things, you know, you're thinking there of a physiotherapist uh, who normally, you know, is helping people to walk and to move and the rest of it. And she's come in to this highly charged atmosphere 
in which people are dying at an incredible rate. And it was, was, was created, what do you say? It's had a great toll on some of those particularly young women. So there's Jenny revealing there on, um, on the 10th of April there. I've been in for a few days by then. Um, and here's uh, M.A. Dear Michael, my name is M.A. and I'm one of the nurses here. You were admitted in the early hours of 5th of April and immediately intubated. It's taken me some time to figure out that the word intubated means they've stuffed a tube in you. <laughs> intubated. <laughs> I thought it was much more complicated than that. <laughs> and I've been looking at that word for about two years and I just suddenly realised it means we stuffed a tube in you. Anyway, there you go. That means, well, she explains it for me, I didn't read it, obviously, that a tube was placed in your throat to help you breathe. So just to conjure up the picture for you, right? So you're lying in bed, doctors amongst you will all know this, of course. They knock you out with what um, the doctors called mind-changing drugs. Well, somebody of my age, that's got certain connotations. That, <laughs> anyway, that's what they told me. But anyway, mind-changing drugs, um, both to knock you out and to paralyse you because they stuff a tube down your throat, right down there, um, and then pump air into you. So, there you go. You were very sick when you came in, and over the next few days you were proned, she explains what that means, turned on your front for long periods of time. This is to help with your oxygen. You've been kept fully sedated to allow you to tolerate the tube and to give your lungs and other organs time to recover. We were very worried about you for a number of days, but I'm glad to see that now you're starting to improve, 14th of April, and you're receiving a lot less support from the ventilator. You still have some way to go until you recover, but your body is now fighting this virus, and I promise we will keep giving you the best care we can give until we get you back on your feet. There, isn't that lovely? Right, and then uh, here's Margie. Um, Dear Michael, my name is Margie. I'm one of the nurses who admitted you. At the time, you only required a CPAP. I always keep seeing that. I'm about to say crap. <laughs> At the time, you only required a crap machine, a CPAP machine, which helped you, and we were able to move you back to the ward. On your second ICU admission, you required a ventilator, etc. The ICU team was so glad to see you improving every day your breathing is much better compared to previous days. Your vital signs are stable also. We're hoping to see you improving every day. Take one day at a time. You'll get there soon. All the best, Margie. And um, the reason why I read Margie's there is because after I came out of hospital, um, they, they were making a film. You may, some of you may have seen it uh, for ITV called uh, 2020, The Story of Us. And I was sitting in the garden outside talking to the consultant who looked after me, Professor... Hugh Montgomery, and a woman came past and then came back and went, hey, you're Michael Rosen. And I thought she just recognised me and she said, but you, you're, you're, you're alive. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, I never know quite what to say, you know. No, yes, um, I'm a zombie. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, so I said yes. And she said, last time I saw you, you were, and of course the prof was there as well. And so they were kind of laughing at the fact that it did seem as if I wasn't going to make it. Um, and it was Margie. It was Margie, uh, Caribbean nurse. And um, we sat and talked. And uh, it's very difficult, I find, meeting the nurses who've looked after me. And I keep meeting them. I've met one on TV and at other times. And it's, uh, it is quite, quite difficult. Um, here's uh, Kajal. And uh, he said, hello, Michael. I'm looking after you today with Kasia, a nurse from Gosh, that's Great Ormond Street Hospital. So just think, nurses are coming across from Great Ormond Street, which is a children's hospital. She's wonderful. I've been asking you to blink and squeeze my hand to communicate, and you've been diligently obliging. <laughs> this is a little theme that runs through this book, is that, uh, well, I, I comment on it because when I was at school, no teacher ever called me diligently obliging. <laughs> They might have called me diligently disobliging um, many times over, but something happened to me in there that from the moment that doctors and nurses and physios and occupational therapists tell me to do things, uh, told me and still telling me, I go, yeah, and I just do it. If they say, lift your right arm, I go, yeah. Now lower it, yeah, like that. And I leave it in the air until they tell me to bring it down. You know, I have become the ultimate submissive, diligently obliging. You're doing great. The doctors are keeping an eye on your blood pressure. Your NHS 60 years anniversary poem is touching to all working here in ICU. Thank you. Please send it to Boris Johnson. 
Oh dear, it wasn't going to go political at all, is it? So, I really hope you recover well. Best of luck. Kajal Doshi, physio, again, you see, ICU helper. Um, and here's uh, Pat. Uh, it's a pleasure to look after you. I'm Pat, a lung nurse special, uh, specialist, sorry, lung nurse specialist, currently working in ITU. It's lovely to see all the photos of your family smiling and showing how much you're loved. Little does she know. We will keep you com just joking. It's all right, Emma, I was just joking. We will keep you comfortable and talk to you all through the shift to let you know what we're doing. That's very kind, but of course, absolutely zero memory of this. You know, you've got to think somebody completely knocked out on gallons of morphine and other stuff. So I'm just lying there. I'm totally oblivious. And yet they say this stuff. It's so beautiful, isn't it? We will keep you comfortable and talk to you all through the shift to let you know what we're doing. And I'm just a cadaver, really. I know I'm sort of blinking, probably. And obviously the signs, you know, beep, beep. So that probably proved something. My kids were brought up on your poems and loved them. We've given you a lovely wash and brushed your thick hair. Yeah, well, that fell out, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it didn't manage to keep that, but anyway, there you go. And then Claire says, um, it's Claire the physio again. You must be sick of me talking to you today. I don't think so. We've been chatting a lot to keep you stimulated so your blood pressure rises. We've also been playing some of your stories on a laptop. I love the way you tell them, you're so animated. You're turning your head when I'm talking to you as well. Great stuff. Every time I see you, you're looking a little better, Michael, which is lovely to see. Keep going. You've got this. That's on the 29th of April. So they're, they're still hoping that I'm living. Um, but uh, they're not, I can tell you, they weren't really sure. Um, and then Lizzie says, uh, I looked after you on one of your first nights, so it's lovely to see how far you've come. You still have a breathing tube going into your throat, meaning you aren't able to speak. <laughs> so unfortunately for you, it's mostly me chatting away to you. I seemed to get a response when I mentioned that you supported Arsenal, <laughs> judging from your pictures, but you didn't seem impressed when I told you I was a Derby County fan. <laughs> You're currently sleeping very peacefully and look very comfortable. Um, and then we have... Hi, Michael, it's Natasha again. I worked with you a couple of weeks ago. At the moment, you have some padded mitten-type things on your hands. This is just to stop you from accidentally pulling out any tubes, like your tracheostomy tube. So for those of you who don't know what a tracheostomy tube, I'm sure you all do, but that's basically where they stick another tube into you, just sort of round about here. Yeah, I think that's where it is, yeah. Straight into there. Uh, which connects to the ventilator or the NG tube in your nose, which carries nutrition and hydration to your stomach. That's nasogastric, I think. Your blood pressure has been fluctuating a bit. It's sometimes on the low side, so we have to keep waking you up regularly to stimulate you and bring it back up. Sorry if this has been annoying. Your nurse this shift has been Sarah, who's wonderful. Yes, we're rooting for you. So that was Natasha. Thank you. So there we are. Uh, I'll read you one or two more of these. Uh, here's Holly. My name is Holly. I'm currently helping Nurse Joe in looking after you. It's lovely to see how well you're progressing. Today I've made you a YouTube playlist of all the songs your family sent us. Some absolute tunes on there. You've been listening to the playlist all day. I think I'm enjoying it as much as you. I doubt that I was enjoying it at all, but I don't know. We're going to video call your family shortly. It's always important for recovery to hear familiar voices. Keep fighting. I know you can do this. Best wishes, Holly. And then here's another nurse I met, Monique. It's been so lovely to look after you today on your birthday. Oh, yes, that's right. It was my birthday, May the 7th. You've been a popular chap today. FaceTime calls from your family and a birthday card. No memory of this at all. You were also treated to a rendition of Happy Birthday from about 15 ICU staff around your bedside and a round of applause from staff and one of the other patients. You continue to improve, and I know how proud everyone is of you. I'm Monique, ITU nurse, who's looking after you today, along with help from Bruce and Dennis. They've all taken fantastic care of you. I wish you all the best in your recovery. Get well soon. Sophie, physiotherapist, Monique, ITU nurse. If you want to see me and Monique talking, you can go to the Penguin website, and then we're talking together, and you may see me getting a little bit, uh, little bit teary meeting Monique. Um, and as an indication of the kind of pressures, I don't think she'll mind me saying this, uh, that those nurses and physios were under is that she can't go back to work here. She hasn't been back to work. 
you know, you think of the mortality rate, something like 42% were dying on my ward. And, you know, nurses, whether they were ITU trained or not, this was a, an immense burden that they've, they've, they've experienced, many of them. Um, so let's just go on to Dan. Uh, here's Dan. And he says, uh, your nurse Ash and I have been looking after you. You've been coughing quite a bit, bringing up a lot of phlegm. That means we haven't had to suction you as much. Every cloud. <laughs> the coughing has made it hard for you to sleep, but you have gotten a couple of hours of shut-eye. Communication has been very challenging for you. You've been trying to tell us a few things, but we haven't been able to understand, and that's been very frustrating for you. But you've told us you're comfortable, and you've stayed positive in spite of it all. Keep fighting. It'll be worth it. And I think it's Dan, uh, I think so, he sent me the diary, his own diary, that he kept while he was in there. And uh, he sent it to me, he said, I've had to change all the names, I've called you Mr Jacobs, you see? And I said, all right, thanks very much. And he said, you can read it, it's fine, you know, look at it. And so I read it, and um, uh, there's an entry in it, he says one day, I said a few Hail Marys over Mr Jacobs, <laughs> even though I know he's Jewish. <laughs> So that sort of, you know, covers all the bases, really. Well, some of the bases, anyway. But then I was a bit disconcerted, like a couple of days later. It says, I came into the ward. Mr. Jacobs is still alive. <laughs> he must have gone home the night before and thought, he didn't write it in the diary, you know, Mr. Jacobs is going to cop it tonight. Um, but, you know, he said, oh, Mr. Jacobs is still alive. It was a brief moment where I thought, oh, poor old Mr. Jacobs. And I thought, oh, that's me. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Dan. That was lovely. Uh, thank you for sending that to me. Um, and then um, we get uh, just towards the end. Um, this, this, this was this, my send-off. Uh, my name is Louise. I'm one of the sisters here. It's so nice to hear that today you had your tracheostomy removed and you're now breathing unaided. Um, talking to you this evening, you're expressing how you've had to relearn many things. Again, no memory of this. This is the 21st of May, uh, as you recover from your illness. This is true, but remember to give yourself the time to do this. You'll get stronger day by day. Be patient if you can. We'll help you all we can to rebuild your strength and support you as you continue on your journey of recovery. So pleased to be able to talk with you and hear your voice. Best wishes, Louise. I haven't met Louise. I mean, just the sheer kindness of that, you know, I've got no memory of it, and to say that, so I've got that message forever, you know, in my patient diary there, it's just so lovely. Um, and so by then, I'd been under from the 4th of April to the 21st, something like 40 days in the coma, and then there's a sort of 10-day period, I think, I figured it out talking with Emma, my wife, that... Um, where I've really got no memory. So there's about sort of 50 days that have kind of disappeared, basically. Uh, they moved me uh, straight after the, the, that ward, the ITU ward, into a geriatric ward. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. Um, and um, it was uh, a bit odd, really. It wasn't a very happy time. I was in a sort of little annex to one side. And I did have one very strange conversation with a night nurse who came in and said, what are you in here for? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she said, I don't know either. And I said, well, if you don't know and I don't know, we're both in trouble then, aren't we? But it was a bit like that, because the night nurse was coming in, and, and you'll know, you know, geriatric wards, I didn't look geriatric. I mean, I was speaking and talking and appeared to be uh, quite awake and so on. But looking back on it, I was confused. I was confused about being confused, and I didn't understand things. Uh, one night I rang Emma and said, can I come home? And I thought she was going to go, yeah, brilliant. And she went, no. <laughs> and I said, why not? And she said, well, because you can't stand up and you can't walk. I mean, what do you mean, come home? And I remember getting quite upset about that. Anyway, a doctor asks me whether I've had hallucinations or nightmares or terrifying delirium. I say, no. She says that they're getting reports the people who've been in, t in intensive care are experiencing this. They're troubled by it. Are you? I said, no. She says, we gave you a lot of mind-changing drugs, so we wouldn't be surprised if you said you were suffering from this. Were you upset or agitated by anything like this? I said, I, dream, I dream the Christmas carol and write a new version in my head. 
And then I become distressed that I can't write it down. Hmm, she says. I also keep dreaming of a German Christmas party. It's always the same part. I've never been to a German Christmas party, but I'm sitting outside at night in a garden, wrapped in blankets, and I know that I can't move my legs. My legs won't move. Someone explains that they throw purple berries into the air. They do it, they throw the berries in the air, and the berries burst with a flash, like little stars, and everyone cheers. Hooray! They tell me the word for the purple berries is Wasbieren. Again, the berries burst in the night sky and everyone cheers. I have that dream again and again, I say. Hmm. <laughs> Nothing terrifying. Well, I am disturbed by another dream. I imagine that just before I got ill, I came across a statement, a kind of manifesto from a German farmer. It was a reply to the hate coming from neo-Nazis in his neighbourhood. He comes towards me wearing a stonewashed bib and brace and he stands alongside his 1950s tractor with his family round him. His manifesto tells how we can only go on if we love each other. We have to find many different kinds of love, he says. Love for lovers, love for our children, love for our colleagues, love even for people we don't know. If we don't, we will destroy ourselves. What makes me sad about this dream is that I keep getting to the point where I'm thinking, where is this manifesto? Who is the farmer? I feel sure he gave it to me before I got ill. How did I get to meet him and his family? Where was it? And then it goes. It's not nightmarish. It's more a, sort of, more a matter of regret that I've lost track of something. Hmm. A nurse tells me every day that Emma has rung and that they're telling her everything. I think of the space between here and home where Emma is. It's only a few streets, but it's a gulf. In that world, I used to get up and make myself breakfast. I'd sit down with Emma and plan what I would do over the next few months. Here, I wait for a meal and I'm asked if I've opened my bowels. Was it a big one? A medium one or a small one? I'm ticked off if I lie too far from the centre of the bed. A nurse walks past, singing, no woman, no cry. It's four in the morning. The nurse tells me she's doing my obs. Blood pressure, oxygen level, temperature. And what she picks up from looking at me for 30 seconds, or is it a minute? I offer up my arm for the pressure sleeve, my finger for the oxygen clip, my ear for the temperature. I wait while she looks at me. <laughs> she writes down the figures. There's now a ledger telling the story of all my ups and downs. I've become an account. I turn on the bed and into the pillow. They don't belong to me. My body has become theirs. They have it. They tell me about my liver, my kidneys, my lungs, my heart. It's all in the account. <laughs> and then it's night. I press the button on the buzzer strung up by my bed to call for the nurse. I want the bedpan. I can't walk, but I can lift myself up enough to squat on a bedpan. I call for the nurse. It's night. I call for the nurse, but she doesn't come. I press the buzzer again. I'm sweating. It's night. I call out. I shout. I'm sorry that I'm waking people up. I press the buzzer. It's night. I soil myself and feel ashamed. I long to be home where I could perhaps have crawled to the loo, I think. The nurse comes. I say that I'm sorry, very sorry that I've soiled myself. She says sorry she was dealing with another patient. I think rows and rows of beds like soldiers in the First World War. And here she is struggling to get round and I've gone and soiled myself. And she's a woman I've never met, who's never met me, who has to clean me up. I am sorry, very sorry. She says that I shouldn't worry. She slips away in the dark. It's night. And I was, uh, there were things I just literally couldn't remember. I've forgotten my shoes. I don't know what my shoes were. I try to remember my feet in shoes. The only shoes I know are the ones I have here. Black plastic Crocs. But what shoes did I used to wear? I've forgotten my shoes. I was really quite surprised when I got home. The other thing was, was that I said to Emma, uh, I think I've written about this, I said to Emma, um, when I come home, um, I think it's probably best if I sleep in the spare room. If I just sort of live in the spare room. And she said, why is that? And I said, well, so that it's near the loo. And she said, really? We've got a loo downstairs. I said, have we? She said, yeah. 
And I didn't believe her. I just thought she was just being nice or something. And I kept lying in bed thinking about how we could fit the loo in downstairs in the, in the space under the stairs. So the first thing, sorry again, spoiler alert, when I got home, um, the first thing I did was look for the downstairs loo. And there was a cupboard under the stairs. It's still there. And uh, but opposite is a loo. And I said, oh, there is a loo. And my daughter looked at me and went, yeah. <laughs> anyway, as they do. Um, yeah. So a doctor stands by my bed and says that I have three blood clots in my lungs. I picture three reddish brown scabs stuck in the passageways of my lungs, nestling in the alveoli like bubble-like cul-de-sacs that I drew for my biology exam when I was 16. She says, blood clots are always a worry because they can get into the bloodstream and cause heart attacks and strokes. I see the scabs heading downstream in my veins, getting stuck in the heart I dissected for biology, or pushing into my brain and killing off a chunk of that cauliflower-looking thing. How worried should I be? I say. Oh, you'll probably digest them, he says. I remember picking scabs off my knee on camping holidays <laughs> and eating them. <laughs> I must have digested them, yes, that's right. Mm. Um, and then... I have a tube sticking up my nose or out of my nose. I don't know why I have a tube sticking up my nose or out of my nose. It's there all the time. It's been there for as long as I remember. I feel it rest on my neck, rubbery and clammy. It could be a worm or a slug. One night it falls out. I call the nurse. I say, uh, the tube has fallen out of my nose. She seems cross. She asks me why I pulled the tube out of my nose. I say, I didn't pull it out of my nose. It came out. She says that she'll have to put it back. She collects together some instruments, pulls the curtain round the bed and shines the light on me. I hear her breathing next to me. Then I feel the worm going up my nose and a moment later I feel it going down my throat. I gag. The worm keeps on going. The nurse turns off the light and takes the instruments away. In the morning the doctor comes around and says, it's time to take the tube out. <laughs> we'll do that today, he says. You're doing very well, he says. You were very poorly <laughs> yes and so um the next step was that uh, uh, because i couldn't get up or anything uh, i would uh, they took me to a, a rehabilitation hospital so it's sort of the opposite of amy winehouse you know yes 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 rather than no 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 sorry that was a reference here um, so it was, it was a, like a lovely dream, really. Emma told me about it, and I see myself sitting in a garden in a wheelchair with a blanket over me, looking at the trees. I imagine me standing up and walking across the grass. I'm sure it's going to be good. And then when I got to the um, rehab rehabilitation hospital, uh, there, I was in for a little bit of a shock, um, as you might imagine, um, because I really did discover that I couldn't stand up and I couldn't walk. Uh, and, uh, but physios and occupational therapists would come to my bedside, so it was right from the beginning, and, and they're very, very optimistic people. If there's any physios and occupational therapists in the room, you know, I owe an enormous amount to you, and you're very, very optimistic, but um, when you're lying there, you might not be quite as optimistic. So the first person who came, he'd been in the Greek army, and um, he stood by the side of my bed, and he went, all right, today we're going to stand up. One, two, three, let's go. And I remember looking at him and going, uh, where? What? I mean, you know, you've got to be, I mean, I wasn't paralysed, but I was just so weak that, I, you know, all I could do was really just sort of lift a leg in the bed. That's about all I could do, you see. Um, and then uh, I could see he had two people with him who, who obviously thought that wasn't going to work as a, as a method. And so they sort of eased him to one side and it was Ashma, who, who you may have seen. I was on telly with her. Um, wonderful Ashma. And she said, uh, yes, I think, yes, thank you, Valentinus. Um, yeah, I think what you'll be able to do, Michael, is we're going to get you a, a special frame and uh, we're going to help you. And so I think, as I remember, about four people came to my bed and then levered me onto, it's, it's not a Zimmer, it's another kind of frame. It's got another name. 
I've forgotten it now. They call it something like a, a double or something. And you sort of lean on it as well as hold it. So you get sort of double support from it. And then um, I was able to take one step with that. And um, bit by bit, uh, they taught me how to stand up, um, uh, how to work a wheelchair, which I thought was brilliant. I thought, right, I'm a wheelchair person. That's very good. I'll become a wheelchair person. And this was, of course, the first time I'd seen anything apart from awards. So I went to the window, and then I sort of saw people li alive out there. There was a woman watering flowers, and I thought, good Lord, oh, yeah, um, I remember that. And um, there was, it was quite, quite strange to be learning how to walk again um, in my life. And so uh, I was going to read you a little bit about that. Um, so here I am. Oh, they got worried about me. They've been worried about my low blood pressure, but they've brought me the Daily Mail, so it'll be fine in just a moment. Anyway, so that was fine. Um, another day, the physios take me to some parallel bars. I'm allowed to grip them as I swing a leg or as I try to move forward or sideways or stand at one end while we throw a ball at each other. I feel a space in my middle that hasn't worked for months. I can take a few steps with the zimmer. I remember the man on our block at home who must have had a stroke who walks from his house to the shops using a zimmer. Maybe that's me from now on. I remember that in the years I've seen him, that's what he does, that's him. He hasn't stopped using a zimmer, that's where he's at. Yeah, maybe that's me. Try not to shuffle they say. See if you can lift your feet up. Look ahead. So very helpful, you see. It's lovely. Um, and then um, they said, uh, um, yes, I remember the first time they said, uh, you're going to the gym. And I remember thinking, you know, gym? Really? You're kidding. But no, no. In the gym, I walk five steps and grab the bar. The physio says that's really good. And I'm proud. She says that she knows children who like my books. I'm proud again, but then I'm sad. I'm sure I won't be well enough to stand in front of 500 children ever again, telling them my poems and stories and hearing them laugh. I say that to her. She says that, eh, I can't say that. Maybe you will do those things again, she says. So about three or four months ago, maybe a bit more, I did a show. I was standing up in front of 900 children at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, the QEH in London, and I was signing books at the end, and a woman came up and said, will you sign the book? And I said, signing the book. And she said, it's Emma. And I said, all oh, right, do you want Emma in there? And she said, no, Emma from the rehabilitation hospital. And I looked at her, and of course I said, oh, you're the one who said that I would, I would be able to stand up in front. She said, yes, that's right, look, and here are my children. She had brought the children to the show. So you can imagine, again, you know, there's quite a lot of teary stuff going on there. Um, I mean, just incredible. And she was the one who said I would. And I just thought she was just, yeah, well, very nice. She was just trying to encourage me, you know. Um, but there we are. And um, yes. And then uh, I learned to walk with a stick. And to help me work, use the stick, I, I gave it a name. I write a tweet that I have a new friend, Sticky McStick Stick. <laughs> And he's helping me walk. It seems as if people are glad that I'm not dead. And they're laughing about Sticky McStickstick. I take a photo of him lying in my bed, handle on the pillow, the shaft under the duvet. Yes. Today, they say we're going to try the stairs. At the stairs, they tell me to grab the banister and haul myself up, first using one foot and then the other. My right leg won't do the work. It refuses. Don't worry this time, they say, it'll come, just use your left. <laughs> How many stairs have you got at home, they say. I try to imagine home and the stairs. It's hard, I can't count them in my mind. We want you to be able to climb stairs before you go home, they say. I think, why? I could live on one level. I think of Chrissy's grandmother living in the front room of their house. But then I remember she was 90. I'm 74. Maybe I've become a kind of 90. Someone said to me, though, we're all the same age, but at different times. <laughs> I do the maths. He's right, yeah. I try to walk to the loo without using Sticky McStickstick. 
I stagger. I think of M people, Heather Small. I sing to myself, search for the hero inside yourself. When I get there, I sit on the loo, wondering how many people have sung, search for the hero inside yourself, to get themselves to the loo. The nurse tells Peter in the bed opposite that his urine is dark. The times are dark, he says. <laughs> I realise that I've learned how to walk three times. The first, I guess, was when I was about one, living in a flat over a shop with a backyard. I stayed walking every day until I was 17. I got knocked down by a car, spent eight weeks in hospital in a kind of hammock. They told me to get up and walk, and I couldn't. So they sent me to a rehab centre and taught me how to walk in the middle of a field not far from Watford. And then after this COVID stuff, yeah, three times. Seems a bit excessive. <laughs> and um, here's a sense of the, the people looking after you. Um, you, you. Quite often you only know them from the way they touch you. Your hands speak. Touch is a language. Each palm, each fingertip is a line from your stories. I get what they each say. This hand is in a hurry. This hand hesitates. These hands are worried. They catch me as I slope sideways. This hand knows a lot. It hunts for the lumps where previous jabs filled me with blood thinner. This hand hunts for bed sores. It spreads Vaseline and kindness. So it's the sort of language that you're there. And then, uh, I'm a traveller who reached the land of the dead. I broke the rule that said I had to stay. I crossed back over the water. I dodged the guard dog. I came out. I've returned. I wander about. I left some things down there. It took bits of me as prisoner, an ear and an eye. They're waiting for me to come back. The ear is listening. The eye is the lookout. And then I sat there trying to think about this wonderful thing that all these people had done for me. And this is how I thought about it. Years ago, I sat by my children's beds waiting for a fever to go. I'm a parent. It's what we do. The nurses have given me a patient diary. Reading it, I get to realize that as I lay there unconscious, a nurse sat by my bed all night, night after night, talking to me, telling me things, cleaning me, trying to wake me up out of the coma. And then when the long night was over, they sat and wrote me a letter to put in this patient diary. I tried to fathom this devotion. They aren't my parents. So I could only think of them as my parents. Uh, and I missed out at one stage in the, uh, the rehab when I came home. Um, Two physios come over. They ask me to walk across the room. They say, that's very good. They ask me to push my legs against their hands. They say, that's very good. One of them asks me, what are my long-term objectives? <laughs> I stop and think. What are my long-term objectives? Do I have long-term objectives? Should I have long-term objectives? Well, I would like to write a book about a French dog called Gaston Le Dog. <laughs> I don't say that. I say that I would like to be able to walk to the Jewish deli on the corner and wheel the shopping back in our trolley. The physio smiles. She writes it down in her book. I'm trying to say that going shopping and bringing it back seems huge, much bigger than anything I can do now. It feels like a long-term objective. Anything else she says? Live for a bit more? I think, but I've never bothered to pickle cucumbers. I just buy them. But my mother made lovely pickled cucumbers. I would like to try that one day. You're doing very well, they say. <laughs> and uh, actually, what I didn't say was how I woke up, uh, because they couldn't wake me up. Um, it, uh, I'm, so I was asleep for that 40 days. And so uh, Hugh Montgomery, Professor Hugh Montgomery, he thought that the best thing would be do, to do would be to get Emma in. So this was at the time when some people were partying down there in, no, don't go, don't go there, don't go there. Anyway, so technically, 
Emma wasn't allowed to come in, but they made a special dispensation. She got dressed up in PPE, and she came to the fourth floor atrium uh, at the Whittington Hospital, which looks out over London, nominally where certain Dick Whittington uh, turned again. Um, and um, she held my hand and played recordings of my children uh, in my ear. Um, I've often, I haven't heard it. I've asked Emma to play it to me, uh, if I can cope with it, but um, I haven't heard it. So I can only imagine things that they said. They're mostly grown up. I've got te uh, teenagers, our youngest. I've often wondered, he, he doesn't, he doesn't talk an awful lot. Teenagers don't, often, well, some do, but anyway, he, uh, maybe he does at school, but not much at home. So uh, I sort of often thought, well, I wonder what, I wonder, Emil, he's called, I wonder what he said. Did he just go, hi, Dad? <laughs> I mean, just that. I mean, you know, that's it. That would do, wouldn't it? Apparently, anyway, when I heard him, it was him, I think, apparently I went. <laughs> so that was obviously some sort of breakthrough. Hi, Dad. Um, and Emma, uh, anyway, so Hugh said that that was the breakthrough moment. I've, I've written about that, I should have marked that one. Um, yeah, it, that I, they wheeled me back into the lift. I said goodbye to Emma. Well, I didn't, they did. Uh, and um, apparently I couldn't stop talking. So there's a surprise. Um, yes, it, it, Hugh calls it the game changer. So that fact that Emma played those recordings of the children, I say call them children, there's 17, 19, 28, 50, anyway, you know. Um, and uh, uh, so um, that, that, was, that was definitely a, a, a breakthrough moment. Um, so yes, he, he, he told me that. Um, so what I thought I would do is finish with These Are The Hands. Uh, oh no, I can, just, there's a few poems from here. Um, that the, the paperback's got a couple of other, it's got new ones. So here's one. I was bad. I took a wrong turning in life. I got old. I didn't mean to. Perhaps someone led me astray. Perhaps I was weak. I just got into bad ways and I kept doing it, kept on and on being old. So I got my punishment, fair dues. I was caught, sentenced to death. Part of herd immunity, they said. But I got a reprieve thanks to doctors and nurses who seemed to think I shouldn't swing for it. You never forget things like that. I'll always be grateful to those people who saw a bit of good in me in spite of everything. <laughs> I'm glad I've been given a second chance, but I'm trying not to be old now. But it's hard. I get tempted. <laughs> I look in the mirror and see wrinkles and start to say to myself, you're old. But you have to stop yourself, don't you? Because being old is dangerous. When you're around people who say your time's up, you've just got to go. Yeah, that's it. Anyway, excuse me for being cynical. Okay. I meet my grown-up children in the park. They take the dad for a walk. I don't have a lead. <laughs> I don't run off. And I don't sniff other dads. <laughs> and so we'll finish with these are the hands and then we'll do questions, yeah. These are the hands that touch us first. Feel your head, find the pulse and make your bed. These are the hands that tap your back, test the skin, hold your arm, wheel the bin, change the bulb, fix the drip, pour the jug, replace your hip. These are the hands that fill the bath, mop the floor, flick the switch, soothe the saw, burn the swabs, give us a jab, throw out sharps, design the lab. And these are the hands that Stop the leaks, empty the pan, wipe the pipes, carry the can, clamp the veins, make the cast, log the dose, and touch us last. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I'm happy to take questions. As you see, I'm, I'm sort of fu fu fully frank and fully frontal noodle, noodle, noodle. You know what I mean. Anyway, so full frontal nudity. Yeah, so uh, I'm quite happy to answer questions on anything. So please do raise your hand and I will do my best to answer it. 
I'm not a medico, but... Um, Any questions? Any questions? Please be brave. Please do. Yes, over there, you some people. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Um, very, very good to see you. You're still here? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, the question I wanted to ask is, you said one of the nurses had, had suggested that Boris received your poem about the national health. How many days do you think it would take him to admit that he'd received it? That's a good point. Or that he forgot that he received it. Yeah, I mean, you might say, well, I, 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 I didn't actually receive it. Sorry, I'm going to apologise for saying that I didn't receive it. In fact, I did receive it. And I'm very, very, I'm, I'm humbled. I'm humbled. Yeah, well, anyway, I don't know exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, who knows? Yes. Is he still in office? Is he still in? Um, I think while I was here, another five people resigned while I was on the way here on the train, and the train stopped at the station. Another five stopped, resigned, I think, while I was, the train stopped at the station. So I don't know. I think maybe when we leave here, there'll be, I don't know, maybe there'll be nobody left. It just, <laughs> I've got to rule without them. I'm going to rule without, I don't need a cabinet. Who said that before? Somebody before me. Don't need a cabinet. Caligula, was it? Anyway. <laughs> he promoted a horse. What a good idea. Hello, Michael. Uh, thank Hi. you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, I just wondered, um, because I had a near-death experience myself, and my aftermath was essentially trying to forget about it, not think about it and found it very difficult to write about it. And I was just wondering how much of an, an asset it was to you to have that patient diary that could bring you back to the experience and actually allow you, in a way, to write about it. Yeah, lovely, thank you. Um, well, there are many layers to it. Um, to start off with, I didn't dare look at it. I just sort of did that thing that sort of kids do when they, they say, don't like the custard because it's got lumps in it, you know, you just sort of... <laughs> just sort of push it away and not really look at it. And Emma kept saying, it's a patient diary there, you could read that. And actually I can see it sitting on the kitchen table and uh, I didn't open it. And then Emma suggested, it was Emma's suggestion that it goes in the book. Um, and so I remember photocopying them without reading them and sending them to the editor. And she said, well, which ones do you want to include? And I said, you choose. So I still hadn't read them. So the first time I really read them was actually when the book came out. So what the biggest help for me was writing and because it's what I do um, writing is a way for me partly of getting to understand things I mean not all the poems but uh, some poems are about uh, quite a few poems about uh, understanding things and, and what I say to people about that is it's the way I, I write is I unfold things onto the page so instead of thinking of writing as writing sentences or even phrases that somehow or other all have to hang together in a particular way, the rhythm of my writing is, is you write something and then you unfold the next bit, and then you unfold the next bit. So it's a different thing in my head when I'm doing it. So other poets will talk about writing a completely different method, but for me, the advantage of that is it feels very easy that I'm unfolding bits from memory and sensation, so it doesn't feel like a challenge, and you don't have to write sentences, and it doesn't have to be some sort of special dressed-up kind of language or anything like that. You just unfold it. So that's what I find very useful. Then, as I was sort of meeting the, some of the nurses and the physios and so on, and then I did sat, I sat down and kind of read it all the way through in their handwriting, and then obviously in the book, and. Um, it's just utterly bewildering. It's overwhelming, really, that there's that attention. And, that, and, of course, I think by now it would be quite difficult if it was just a blank, if it was just nothing. I would have to... I mean, in fact, Hugh invites people to come to the ward and come and look at it so that it isn't this kind of strange, troubling sort of nonsense place that people make up stories about. He wants them to just come and see, even just to look through the look through the glass, to look in and just see, well, that's where you were lying, that's what it was like. And they are very aware, I did do a couple of sessions for the all-party parliamentary group on post-ICU care, and the people who are utterly traumatised, I don't want to speak for you, but utterly, utterly traumatised by it, because 
Well, I don't know. I'm not quite sure, because I'm not going to say I'm traumatised by it. I get bothered by it and I'm made uncomfortable about it, but I know there are some people, and there is a post-ICU self-help group and they meet once a week, and there are people who are deeply, deeply traumatised by it. I mean, they know that it saved their lives, but at the same time, that amount of druggery that goes on to put you under and the sheer idea that you're utterly helpless for 10, 20, 30, 40 days, and in some cases more. And uh, there's one bit that disturbs me a bit is when I said to Monique and said, um, do, do, just out of interest, do, do people usually wake up and are okay after 40 days? And she went, <laughs> oh, right. So, you know, uh, I said, is it a long, is 40 days long? And just sort of in terms of short lights, she said, mm, it's a long one, that one. And that was partly because I haven't said it there, but I got a secondary infection. Uh, I got bacterial pneumonia as well. So I got Klebsiella. So uh, the hospital admitted that, so I'm not saying anything. They, they apologised, but it was basically a breakdown in procedures. So I got that, I got Klebsiella. And on that happy note... <laughs> no, there you go. We have got another question. Great. Here. What's your favourite children's book and why? By me or by somebody else? Yes, favourite by somebody else is Emil and the Detectives. <laughs> Emil und die Detektive von Erich Kessner. Uh, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, I absolutely adored it as a kid and I've read it to at least two of my offspring and, and talked about it at university level and done lectures on it. I think it's an absolutely incredible book and also very, very sad in some respects, written in 1929, I think, 28 or 29, full of optimism, and of course we know what happened very soon after. Very much Berlin-based book, even though the boys come from the country. Um, a wonderful film, actually, by Billy Wilder. Uh, some like it hot, but he was still in Germany, and he made one of the first ever sync sound movies, location sound. You can see, I mean, some of the shots in Berlin with live sound from 1929, 30, 31, 31, I think the movie is. Have a look at it, it's absolutely brilliant. Sort of like little expressionist moments in it as well. So that would be... Could uh, we have just one last question? Yes, OK, course, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for a very powerful exposition of your experience. May I ask you, given that you were out of it for much of the time, how often did you believe that you might die? Um, probably not at all. Because, um, you see, because the time I was in the coma when my life was most at risk, obviously, you know, I, I didn't know anything at all about it. Then when I came round, I just thought, I'm a bit helpless. But I didn't think I was dying. I just thought I was sort of not, not very, you know, I was going to be in a wheelchair. Or I was going to be on a Zimmer. Or I was going to be always with a stick. Um, and then I noticed I was progressing. Um, so that was good. Um, so no, I didn't at any point then think that I was dying. So I've only sort of been, I only find that out by reading back or looking at the doctor's notes and, oh, oh, he's got Klebsiella, oh, oh. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, so it's all sort of in retrospect, really. So the danger I was in, I, mean, I didn't even think, when I said, well, you know, even when they said 50 50, you know, I thought, as you know, I thought, well, you know, pretty good, you see. So, um, so really not at all. I mean, it is rather bizarre. Um, but that's sort of the nature of uh, intensive care, you know, is that you're out of it when you're at your most vulnerable. So there, there's, a, there's a sort of answer. And also when you go for checkups. So I went to the brain hospital in January, uh, which was quite interesting because they first of all gave me a cognitive functioning test. And the first question was, do you know the name of the prime minister? <laughs> and I said, yes, do I, do I have to say his name? Do I? It was a German woman actually, she said, yes, you must, you must say his name. So I said, Boris Johnson said, very good, very good. And the next question was, what age were you when you left school? And my problem is, is I don't think I have left school. I mean, I do live in several time frames at the same time. So I said, well, I haven't really left school. She said, no, you must have left school. So, so I said, oh, probably 18, but I did stay on at the university. I did an MA and I did a bit. No, what time you we left school? Anyway, so I did all that and they did lots of scans and CTs and MRIs and all the rest of it. And then I had to go downstairs to see the consultant and uh, he was sitting by a big screen he said would you like to see your brain 
And I said, well, I've been trying to do that for years. <laughs> he said, no, no, I've got it here. And he put up the screen, and there's this big cauliflower, and he went... <laughs> it looks like you've had altitude sickness. And I said, well, the, the highest I've been was the fourth floor of the Whittington <laughs> Hospital. And he said, no, no. Anyway, so something or other, some oxygen wasn't getting there. And I, and I said, how the, how the... I had microbleeds in my brain. So uh, that's what knocked the eye and the ear out, you see. And uh, I said, how are they? He said, I think they've gone. I think they've gone. And I said, I can't see them either. Like, I would know. <laughs> anyway, and then the nurse turned to me and she said, what exercise are you doing? And I thought, got this, got this. I said, I do three times 30 minute power walks a week. Should be five. <laughs> okay. So I crawled out of the brain hospital in January uh, with my tail between my legs. And since then, I've been doing five power walks a week, five times 30 a week. So there you go. There we are. There I am. <laughs> Little postscript. Little postscript, I tell children I can't hear with my left eye and I can't see with my left ear and I get muddled as well. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. That was wonderful and uh, revealing as ever. Um, okay. Thank you so much. <laughs>